Welcome into episode 24 of the Five Reasons Podcast. Thank you for finding us. We are on iTunes, also on Stitcher. If you have Android, you can also find us on Google Play. Big things coming here in the next couple of weeks, so make sure you subscribe. I'm here, as always, with Chris Whittingham here, and one of the things we've been doing lately is adding guests to the program. We are pleased to be joined by a little bit sleepy this morning, but we're going to wake him up. Brian Windhorse <laughs> from ESPN. Thanks, Brian, for doing this. Do you think guests are overrated in general? I think when you I think when you have them on the phone, I think there's something about the phone where you like lose that connection, but we have you on a proper Skype connection, so I feel like this is going to be just a, just a conversation between three guys. Yeah, I always feel like, yeah, guests are overrated. Get rid of them. Guests are overrated. <laughs> did you did you take a lot of callers? On the radio? No, I I didn't yeah, really that's... have much patience for callers. We we, we, yeah, we use the either. we use the we use the text line, Brian. But like that, you can manipulate because you can yes. just choose you can choose the text right. that you think is appropriate to what you want to right. talk about. With, with a caller, it's just someone saying that they should move on from Brian Tannehill, and then it's another person saying that too, and then another person. Right. So we we didn't have a lot of value for that. It's I'm sure it's very self centered. What I'm doing, I'm like, no, you don't. You're not listening to hear a guest. You're not listening to hear. Some you know uh, Joe from Hallelujah. You want uh, you want to hear what I have to say? <laughs> want... I'm glad you still I'm glad you still remember the municipalities from Miami. There's nobody in, in Hallelujah named Joe, so I Juan. Juan, Juan. How much how much time? Because we we have to before we get to some of the topics here. You were you were in Miami for what three years? Was it? Well, two years I lived in Miami, but I mean the four years LeBron was there, I spent you know, a hundred plus days there. So how long did I claim Florida residency? Now that's a different conversation (laughs) altogether. I mean, I'm sorry. I started paying state taxes the instant I moved to New York. I I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, (laughs) yeah, I, uh, and I, I had, I did just sell my, my property. I had property in Florida for 10 years. So that's right. You're a real estate tycoon. I forgot about that. I, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Trust me. Talk about 10 years. You did not want to own, it might've been the worst 10 years to own property in the history of the state but i did i still have my florida driver's license because they give them to you for nine years mm-hmm. and um i got it in 2010 it is still good now i also have another state's driver's license but i still have my florida driver's license and and depending on where i am in the country if there's a place where seeing um a miami address would benefit me i will use the florida driver's license am i committing all i'm committing all kinds of crimes here and then if i if, if i hopefully the irs place, doesn't use, listen to this podcast for a well, the irs doesn't care the irs doesn't care <laughs> the, the, it's more of the states but anyway yes i still have my florida driver's license i still i can't really claim to be a floridian anymore because i don't have any property but yeah so i it was a long way of answering your question that i was in miami full-time for two years, but I, I felt like I lived there for four. Well, I'm sure you spent a lot of time with Joe and Hialeah when you were down here, so it's it's good that you said <laughs> hello here on the pod. All right, let's get to some NBA stuff here, uh, and, and let's start with the Cavaliers for part one here, because last night uh, there's some video that's circulating of uh, LeBron not being so nice to Tyron Lue on the sideline, and, and I remember when whenever you know he would even sort of look askance at Eric Spolster or David Blatt, it was a big issue. Is there an issue in Cleveland right now, Brian? I mean, they're 10-10 they're and 10 without Kevin Love right now. They're, they're trying to incorporate the new pieces, but I mean, what is your sense of what's going on there? The issue is this is the least talented team LeBron's been on since 2009-10. You want to boil through all of it? That's the issue. They just don't have that much talent, and right now, particularly, they're pretty banged up. They only really have three big men on their whole. I mean, they have a fourth guy who's a rookie, Antti Zizic, which I'm sure all of your listeners are very familiar with Antti Zizic. But they basically have three big men that they play, and they're all three of them are hurt. Larry Nance, Kevin Love, and Tristan Thompson. So as a result, they're just getting killed on the interior night after night. They've been on this West Coast road trip. By the way, the Heat and the Cavs, for the 15 years I've covered the NBA, the Heat and the Cavs always seem to be on the West Coast at the same time. <laughs> right, right. Didn't they, didn't Brian, didn't they share, I, I remember that one year, they shared the uh, with the Beverly Hills Wilshire, right? They oh, were, no, they, they, no, they didn't share it. Oh, okay, that's right. The, you know, the Cavs looked ahead and said, you know, we don't want to be in the same hotel. And there was a frosty hotel arrangement. <laughs> there was. And then, you know, I wrote a story about it, and they got angry at me. They were like, we had always planned for this. I go, bull. But, yeah, because, I don't know, for some reason, like, I think it, it may be a little different now that the circus is gone. Like, there is no more Barnum & Bailey Circus. But for a long time, like, 
this I think the circus comes to historically came to Miami in December or January, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always, yeah, it was yeah, always, always January, January road trip, yeah. And Disney on Ice was in Cleveland in January and for the same 10 days Disney on Ice was in Cleveland and the circus was in Miami and so the Cavs and the Heat were always traveling on the West Coast together. And so like for the 10 years that I was a no god longer than that. For like the 12 years that I was a daily beat writer Every January, I always had a West Coast trip. And here we are in March, and the Cavs and the Heat are all back on the West Coast again. But since they've been on this West Coast trip, they've just been pounded by interior scorers. Jokic kicked their butt, even though they won that game. DeAndre Jordan kicked their butt. Julius Randle kicked their butt. Uh, Last night, the Blazers, they don't have a lot of um, interior scoring, but they killed them on the boards. I think they were plus 16 or something like that. So... Part of what's happening right now is, like, they have no bigs. They have no bigs. They, and, the, and the guy, Zizic, who I mentioned, I think he played six minutes last night. So they played, they played last night's game without, it, without a center and without a true power forward. Like, they had Jeff Green play power forward. They had LeBron play power forward. But they are so – like, right now, evaluating them is very difficult. And as far as LeBron and Ty Lue goes, like, LeBron is rough on his coaches, man. He is rough on his coaches. And – Typically, the coach is benefit. You know, he's he's benefited. The upsides are better than the downsides. You know, Ty Lue, for example, has a fantastic six million dollar a year contract mm-hmm. because LeBron led him to a championship in his first year as coach, and he got a huge deal. Mike Brown had a head coaching career because of LeBron and got other chances and still may get another chance, but got other chances because of LeBron, you know, Spo, you know, he, that was situation was a little bit different because, um, you know, he was entrenched and, and you know, he has the complete support of the organization either way, but Spo has two rings that he wears walking around. He's a two time champion coach that I'm fairly certain he wouldn't have without LeBron. So their relationship was a little bit different, but certainly Spo benefited whatever the downsides that LeBron came, the headaches that he delivered on a on a daily or weekly basis, I guarantee you that Spo would tell you that they were worth it in the end. And so and Ty Lu feels the same way. So there are moments where LeBron certainly makes it hard on his coaches, but in general he's lifted the tide on all ships and that's part of the LeBron experience, as you guys know. I'm just amazed that that's the video that we're talking about last night, not the video where he murdered Yusuf Nurkic in, in, in the middle of a live basketball game, adding to his list of corpses over the course of his NBA career. I mean, it really does speak to, though, the LeBron experience that there's just this constant drama and that no matter what happens, what team he's on, what coach, what organization, there's always a drama that that at times – like with this video that we started rather than the video of him throwing down one of the most ferocious dunks we've ever seen in a live NBA game, it sort of outpaces his play in some respect because the media drives on narrative, because the media drives off of, you know, conversations about things that are happening on and off the floor more than just, you know, celebrating somebody. I do think that there are times where LeBron, I wouldn't say it it doesn't cause any real collateral damage because everyone knows how great he is, but we do talk about these nonsense things rather than, his incredible play or the fact that he's 15 years into his career and still looks as good as he's ever been. Yeah. By the way, I don't like it when um, I'm a sounds like such a get off my porch guy here. I don't like it when we criticize people who get dunked on or get crossed over mm-hmm. because you're essentially criticizing them for playing defense. I'm so with you. So with you. But I mean, I realize it's, I, I'm completely in the losing argument there that, like last night after the game, Jordan Clarkson, Cavs guard, he was like, I don't have the quote exactly right. He said, but there's, he's like, there's probably a body bag in the hallway. <laughs> right. um, but I'm like, yeah, that's funny, Jordan, but you guys lost. Right. You know, uh, to, to, to put it in millennial terms, he was holding that L. Um, and uh, I, lo- I love when you speak in millennial terms. Brian. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I work very hard to stay relevant. So just as a quick aside to that, I don't like it. Did we want Wesley Johnson? Did we really want him to actually just back so far off of Harden that he wasn't playing defense? I mean, guys who get crossed over are guys who are trying to stay in front of their guy, you know, which is an epidemic that doesn't happen in the NBA. It's kind of like, you know, making fun of a cornerback because he doesn't know that the guy is going to run a slant pattern and it's 
a six foot five inch quarterback with a cannon arm who's run the same pattern 750 times with the receiver throughout since training camp. And, you know, it'd be, it could be kind of like mocking a a cornerback for biting on a fake or whatever. The cornerback is at a complete disadvantage. You know, he is going to lose most of the time. He just does his best. You can be a hall of fame cornerback. And if you're going up against a great receiver who knows the route, knows what he's doing, you're going to get beat a lot. You know, I I don't know. Anyway. It's just just that there's someone on the receiving end of the greatest plays in NBA history, right? Like, you know the name Craig Elo, or you associate the name Craig Elo with, you know, being crossed up by Jordan. You associate Mozgov with getting dunked on by Blake Griffin. Like, I guess that's the reason why... Right, right, exactly. Tyler with Iverson. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these you have these iconic moments, and like, do you want to have your name being on the receiving end of it? I mean, in the context of history, no. But you're right. I mean, you'd, you'd want in the context of a game for that person to be trying to play defense. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, LeBron definitely. I, I will say this though: this season of the Cleveland years has been, from a LeBron created drama standpoint, not so bad. You know, I think the Arthur thing, whatever, was probably up there and started the stuff he created. And and and, and by the way, we're not done with the season yet. Give LeBron time; he may <laughs> yet do it. But he's been way worse. So that first year, <laughs> right? Oh my God! And you know, just with the like subtweeting Kevin uh, Love and all that. Oh my God! It was fit, just... fit in or fit out, right? That was uh, oh that was God. that was a good one. The David Blatt stuff. Well, well, let me ask you this though, because I mean, as you mentioned. Right now, there's an excuse because they don't have a lot of bigs and, and they're still incorporating people. They don't have love. But, you know, you look at the standings and they're behind Indiana. I mean, you, you know, you look at it before this season and think about what the Pacers were doing, giving up on, you know, the Paul George thing and trading him for, for Oladipo and Sabonis and sort of the roster that they put together and what the expectations were in Cleveland. When LeBron looks at the big picture of this thing, is he going to give people in the organization, the benefit of doubt that, okay, we had a bunch of injuries, we had new parts we had to incorporate, or is he just going to look at it in totality and say, this is just not good enough anymore, I need to go somewhere else? Well, there's all kinds of signs pointing toward toward danger. The overall quality of the roster, and by the way, they've got the highest payroll in the league. I mean, this is the thing about it, is that this is not a – they did not cheap out on this roster. Just, you know, the Kyrie trade – plus other factors have really weakened them. And um, the, the team's okay. It's just not a great roster. It's not the type of roster LeBron has been used to for the last seven years where he's consistently had two all-stars next to him. Now, there were a couple of years where Kevin Love didn't make the all-star team in Cleveland, but he was an all-star player. You know, his production was down because he was sharing the ball, but this is far and away the weakest team. And... There are all kinds of signs pointing to them really being an earlier out in the playoffs. But that said, I also have to say that my experience, you know, the experience bell in my head says to me, number one, the seeding really doesn't matter with LeBron. I know that this is a cop out and I know that, you know, we are going to pay attention to the seeding and oh my God, if they slip to sixth. It's going to be a, a deemed a disaster. The seeding does like he he is not afraid of any team in the East. And frankly, if you've watched the Cavs this year, most of the time when they when they are, when they lose to an Eastern Conference team, it's more about them than the opponent. Occasionally, they've outplayed the opponent, uh, or the they've been outplayed by the opponent. But most of the time, it's their own issues. So I don't really think that they're all that worried about seeding. It's not out of the realm of possibility they could slide to seventh, and in that case, potentially play Boston in the first round, which would be unbelievable. But honestly, I don't think he cares about seeding. I think when he feels like he's right and the team is right, that they can beat anybody east. And and the fact is, they may be right about that. Um, now, I can sit here and and spend twenty minutes constructing scenarios about why the Raptors will, you know, are different this year, and they'll get, you know, they're much more in tune and and, ha- and having. You know, they're the best team in the league at home and, and having to start and end a series there potentially is is doom. But it's LeBron. He's the best player. And and one of the things that we are reminded of in the playoffs every single year is how important having the best player is. It won't win you every series, but if you have the best player, you win most series. 
Yeah, I think you have to look at the, just the fact that the competition in the East, I think Toronto is is better than they've been, you know, Boston with Kyrie. I think to me, the thing that it all stems back to, like you mentioned, Brian, is that Kyrie trade where you basically get rid of one of your superstars and don't get one back. And they were hoping that Isaiah Thomas could produce at that level, and that obviously was a you know complete catastrophe. But I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to be LeBron. You have so many prime years left. It's kind of amazing that year 15 is still a prime year for him, and he doesn't have a superstar teammate. And that wasn't what the deal was when he went to Cleveland. And it, like you said, it's not, it's not for lack of spending, but it's just been a, a really poorly managed situation, starting with the Isaiah trade, and then now you, know, you, you try to add a bunch of role players to make up for it, but you never got a superstar to really make up for the fact that you lost Kyrie. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about the decision and the uh, the Heat 2010 moves. We still talk about it to this day, you know, uh, the way that that changed the league and, and, and it sort of changed the flow of the league and and the and the maneuvers that the Heat made. I mean, it was a historic coup that those of us who were involved in the NBA have talked about for years and we'll talk about for years. Same thing with that Kyrie trade. That Kyrie trade was a seminal moment in this current iteration of the way the NBA is, just like the Durant move, you know, like if you go back and you chart, you know, humongous moves in in the last decade, obviously you have LeBron and Bosch, then you have LeBron back to Cleveland, then you have Durant to Oklahoma or to uh, Oakland, and potentially Kyrie to Boston, not necessarily because of what Boston could do, but what it did to break up LeBron and Kyrie. Uh, we'll see about Chris Paul going to the Rockets. That could end up being there too. But that was a humongous moment in NBA, recent NBA history. And the thing about it is, it's easy to forget now because it, there was just like news, 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 news. But the thing that really drove LeBron crazy, first off, he did not believe that the Cavs should have traded Kyrie. He believed, tell him to come to training camp and we'll figure it out. You have him under contract for two years. Now, granted, LeBron's relationship with Kyrie was a major factor in why Kyrie wanted to be traded. And so when it comes to throwing around blame, a lot of it ends up towards him. But LeBron did not think he should be traded. And then the one thing that drives him nuts is that after they took a look at Isaiah Thomas's hip and they gave him the MRI and they looked at it, he can't believe that they went through with the trade and that they, you know, that, or that they didn't get like – Tatum or Jalen Brown. And I know that like when you say that to Celtics fans, they throw their hands up and be like, what are you out of your, what are your freaking mind? Of course we weren't giving up one of those players. And I would say, okay, but I just want to point something out to you. The whole world now knew that Isaiah Thomas was damaged goods. I mean, we knew he was hurt, but he was giving interviews over the summer, not only demanding a max contract, but he was giving interviews saying he thought he, he would be ready for training camp. He didn't play until January, and he, he probably is just now beginning to play more like himself. So he showed up in January probably two months too early. So the Celtics had completely lost all leverage in trading Isaiah Thomas. Okay, They would have had a major problem. And not only that, they had celebrated getting Kyrie. Like it was a coup trade for them. They were already, I mean, this is not like, you know, you were, these were backdoor negotiations. Nobody found out about it. They announced the trade. I mean, they were getting Kyrie. Okay. So your leveraging position in that situation was very strong. Not even so much as in the negotiations just to get Kyrie, but the fact that the step down that you would have had in the deal you could have made with Isaiah Thomas when the entire world now knew that he was severely injured, the entire leverage position changed. And if you're LeBron, a guy who prides himself on being a good businessman, you called the Celtics back and you go, Hey, listen, you're going to also have to put Jason Tatum in that deal. And of course, Danny Ainge would curse at you and hang up the phone. He'd be like, okay, well then the trades off, send Kyrie back. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, I always, I always see this in trade season when fans are pitching trade ideas and, and you know, they, they pitch some like way lopsided deal. And I'm like, no, you got to include this guy. No, we, we would never do that. <laughs> I go, okay, then you, then you don't get the player. You right. know, it's like, <laughs> right. fine, you, you know, so, and I'm not saying by the way, had they gotten Jalen Brown that all of a sudden that would be like, Oh, the Cavs are fine. The Cavs won 65 games with Jalen Brown. But like that just the way the whole thing went down, just pissed LeBron off. So, 
I mean, that's a factor. And that Kyrie trade, not only trading Kyrie and breaking LeBron and Kyrie, a championship duo up, but trading him to your rival. Man, that yeah. is a hell of a moment. But you're right, though, too. I mean, even if they end up as a six seed, like let, let's say uh, Cleveland gets in as a six and they draw Indiana in the first round. <laughs> the betting on that's going to be 10 to one for Cleveland. I mean, they, there's there's nobody's going to be picking the Pacers, even as the home team in, in a three six series because you have LeBron. So I, I understand what you're saying, Brian, this this idea that we want to make something of the regular season because there's 82 games and it's six months and you want to you want to act like it counts. But <laughs> The reality in the Eastern Conference is, you know, unless Boston gets Hayward back, and that was going to be my next question to you about some of these other contenders, unless Boston gets Hayward back, and and unless we totally trust Toronto that what they've done here with their bench and getting younger and the way that that's played this year has made them impenetrable and that Kyle Lowry is is suddenly going to play big in the playoffs like he's played in the regular season, then a lot of people are still going to view Cleveland as the favorite. Brian, I want to switch to a couple of these other teams because it, look if it's not going to be LeBron this year if, if that's not going to work out I mean obviously you have to look out west in terms of the the teams that would be likely to win a championship the Warriors without Curry right now without Clay and also without the number one seed as we tape this podcast so I, I mean does the number one seed matter for them and um, how would you handle their injury situation the rest of the way with with what appears to be less depth than they've had in recent years well, they've convinced themselves that they don't care about the one seed. Now, that could be just convenient to them, or they could be true. I, I don't think the Warriors think that playing in Houston is particularly challenging. I mean, you've been to a bunch of games in Houston. Do you find that place to be that much of a no? I place no no I haven't. But but also they were still building at that point. So I mean, yeah. with this with this team, I, 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 I you're, mean, you're you're talking though in terms of the crowd though, right? Because I mean, we've seen any number of big primetime games that the Rockets have played this season with the best overwhelming team in the league, and you know you look at the crowd and it looks very Miami y. You know what though? I've always had to defend the Miami. That atmosphere in there, especially for playoff games, was phenomenal. No, I'm I'm um, saying the I'm saying the you know late arriving kind of you know the the the, yeah. the sections that are on television that don't right. look good. I, I I always defend the Miami crowds because you look at the upper deck during those years it was packed to the nines. But you know the 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 late arriving kind of you know uh, button down shirt crowd uh, was, was you know d- didn't make Miami look good. Yeah, only because of camera angles. But you ask players who had to come in there. You know, with the whiteout and after the game, everybody would throw the uh, the seat the covers. Seat, uh, the, the seat covers. Um, I always wondered, like, did they wash those seat covers <laughs> and just put them back on, or did they just like that was always a very fascinating thing. Like those seat covers, it was very fascinating. Do you think they had a new one for every game? But I mean, like, I what it's was just the a white piece of cloth? Of... It can't be that expensive. The purpose of it, well, see, I would argue then why not just give away t- give away T shirts. And then you have the T-shirts on the chairs, and then but it's then not you'd as big see of a the deal. Empty red seats on television, Brian, and that wouldn't look good. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, I always thought that it was pretty damn hard to play in Miami during the playoffs because I thought the environment was good. You know, in Houston, let's put it this way: the Warriors do not fear having to start a series in Houston. And by the way, it's not just about Game Seven to me; it's also about Game One and Two because mm-hmm. because right. I think starting a series on the road is challenging now you steal one and everything's wonderful and you feel great going home with uh with home court but um i don't think the warriors are that worried about it now again let's if we talk in two months maybe they'll be a big deal but uh, i think the warriors sort of learned their lesson from going all out in the regular season in the uh in the 2016 playoffs where they got 73 wins, but then they had a, a really fight through the playoffs and they ran out of gas at the end against the Cavs. Ultimately, I don't think it's much of a choice, Ethan, because it's not like it's like, all right, we'll, we'll play Steph Curry through this ankle injury. They, they don't have a choice. They have mm-hmm. to rest him. But I will say this, like, don't forget, the Warriors went 12-0 in the West playoffs last year. I mean, they could get away with playing – C plus basketball for them, which for them means, you know, 20 turnovers, you know, they only shoot like, you know, 34% from three, you know, they're not great on defense. They, you know, they could play a game like that and still win by 15. And if they played a level basketball, they'd win by 35. They will not be able to get away with C level basketball in the playoffs this year. And I, I think that's the biggest difference in the entire NBA year over year 
is that the Warriors' margin for error is much smaller than it was a year ago. There was nobody, arguably nobody in NBA history, that was beating that team last year four times in seven games. It wasn't happening. I mean, they went uh, 16 and one. It was one of the most remarkable playoff flexings that you've ever seen, which is what you'd expect when you have multiple MVPs on the roster in their primes with a with a terrific overall team. So their margin for error is smaller now. And so now if Steph has a turned ankle at the wrong time, if Draymond's uh, shoulder starts barking at the wrong time, you know, now Clay has a thumb injury, which, you know, doesn't seem like it's that bad, but still Clay's never hurt. Clay's missed like 10 games his whole career due to injury. You know, this is the most significant injury he's ever had. Like all of a sudden you start to see some cracks and you start to, form pathways in your mind that they may not win especially when they will probably have to face the best team that the west has had to offer since they became a superpower i don't necessarily agree with the idea that that if this houston team was in the playoffs last year and they met in a conference final that golden state would have just run through them because yes you know it's the first year with durant but I just think that this Houston team presents such a unique challenge because you have one James Harden, and then when that James Harden's a little tired, you throw in Chris Paul. I mean, that that one-two combo, you would think it wouldn't work in the abstract, but just the idea that you have 48 minutes of someone on the floor who is an all-time caliber at what he does in terms of ball handling, in terms of playmaking, I think this Houston team, had it had Chris Paul last year, would have been able to compete with Golden State in a final, and I think that's where the margin for error has changed. I don't think Golden State has necessarily changed that much, although I think I, I, I want to hear your thoughts, Brian, and your thoughts, Ethan, on the year four phenomena in terms mm-hmm. of a superstar team being together for four years and dealing with pressure for four years and, and sort of the, the corrosive effect that it gets to four years. But I think it's the quality of competition now, more than anything that Golden State's doing, that is sort of leading us down this road of, of Golden State being vulnerable. And I think it's fairly incredible that we're, that we're there already, just a year and a half into Durant being with Golden State, because when he signed there, we all just kind of assumed that the league was just going to end, that we're just going to pack up shop. I mean, Jeff Van Gundy was you know, on the radio in September saying that Golden State had already won the championship, and for Houston to have flipped that narrative in six months' time is really impressive. That's the NBA, right? I mean, it's, you know, you're always going to have challenges. I remember one of the 700 trips that we took to Indianapolis uh, <laughs> in, that, in that span, Ethan. Mm-hmm. Um, it, w- it had to have been the uh, East Finals the one year. Because um, TNT was was doing was doing it, and um, I believe it was the f- which years did they play Indy in the conference finals? The last two years, because they played right. them in the they, they had the, Dwayne and LeBron had that ridiculous three game stretch in the second round. That was the second the second year they were together. So that was, was the um, that was the uh, that was the Chris Bosh ab injury. Yep, that yep. was the dic- that was the dictator. Yes. Series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, little bit of a – well, we could tell that story. So uh, we, we decided, uh, Brian and I and, and Joe there were Goodman – There were two games – there were two days in between games three and four. So the Heat fall down 2-1, mm-hmm. and now there's two days off. Okay, yes. go ahead. Yes, and so uh, while Dwayne Wade was going to the University of Indiana to meet with Tom Crean to try to get his head right uh, because he had he had struggled and we had that situation which Brian and I had a very close look at on the sideline with Dwayne yelling at, at Spolstra. So the team was imploding. We had a couple of days off, so Brian and I decided we would go take in an intellectual movie, The Dictator. Uh, we, let, with, we let Joe pick. We let Joe Goodman, <laughs> who, who's now working in Alabama, choose. So we decided to see that because there wasn't a whole lot to do in Indiana on off days, and so it was the three of us, and there were only three other people in the theater, from what I remember, right, Brian? And and they were LeBron, Maverick, Carter, and I'm not even sure you might remember who the third was. No, uh, no, no. There was a few more, but it was uh, Mario. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Mario. Mario, Mario Chalmers. Le- Mario Chalmers. <laughs> Le- LeBron. Um, Ran- Randy. Yes, Randy uh, Mims was there. And. Bob McAdoo. <laughs> wow. <laughs> was he doing crossword puzzles in the back? And no, Dwayne was there too because No, they, no. I don't no, I, be, I think because Dwayne they had saw, the inside joke. 
they had the inside joke with the uh, the salute, like the number one salute. Yeah, but no, but he didn't see it that day though. Because okay, maybe the, he'd already the, seen it. Some of the players, like Shane Battier, went a different day. But I, what I remember about that movie, um, and of course that's the uh, well, Sasha 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 uh, Baron Sasha Cohen, Baron yeah. Cohen movie was all you could hear throughout the movie was LeBron cackling from the back. He was, he was just, <laughs> he thought it was funny, and that was it. That was because it was like a. I want to say it was like a Wednesday night in May or right. like and 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 it was in a downtown theater and there was nobody else in the theater. It was like the seven of us. Right. And like what I remember is Coach McAdoo sort of sat off by himself. He didn't sit with the players, you know, because the, where the heat stayed was like right around the corner. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was like a private showing. And yeah. um, LeBron and Dwayne like came up with some inside joke from the movie. And I don't know. I mean, if it helped four percent in, you know, they're improving their mood. But um, <laughs> I, the, yeah. the, the only other thing I remember about that was after the movie was over. There's a scene in in that movie uh, where Sasha Baron Cohen pl- playing the uh, the dictator uh, ha- has a moment where he releases himself. I'll just leave it at that. And in doing so, that they, they show Blake Griffin dunking. And I, I, what I've always thought about that was what if what would LeBron's reaction been in the movie theater if it had been LeBron dunking that they had shown uh, <laughs> right when, when that happened, but but I remember at the end of it where LeBron ran up to us and said, "Wasn't that great?" And he we did, were... he did, he was in a great mood. I was <laughs> like, "Well, you're down two one to the Celtics or to the, pa- to the Pacers." Pacers yeah. So, Chris, I'm just I'm going to tell you a story here real quick. So there was this there was this restaurant in Indiana. Uh, I won't say what restaurant it is, but over the three years, I mean, because remember all the. We had so much time in Indiana because three playoff series plus all those regular season games. Joe, Ethan, and I probably ate at this restaurant approximately 15 times in that three-year span. <laughs> and Ethan, Ethan, like, he liked – there were two entrees that he really liked. And so the, he never did this ever. At any other, I mean, I had 400 meals with Ethan over that four years. But he would order both entrees and then just eat half. Half of, of each, that's right. Eat half of each of them, and then t- I guess he took the rest back to his hotel. Well, no, I, I, I would give that away on the street because I didn't have. Oh, a that's microwave. true. You did. You did. Yeah. You did do that. That's true. He was a good Samaritan in that case. So, so you could, so you couldn't make the decision of just wanting one, and then the next time getting the other, you had to have both. That's correct. For some reason, I don't even remember what the dishes were, but for some reason, he liked both dishes so much, and he would explain to the waitress. He would be like, "Listen, I know this is crazy, but I want them both." <laughs> I know that you're going to sound, you know, because he's, he's a very slightly built man. This is not somebody who would normally order two dinners. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joe Goodman at dinner, he would order half of an onion. I'm sorry. Exactly. That's exa- that's often what <laughs> half the waiter of would an say. onion. Yes. You know, he would order his regular meal and then he said, hey, can you bring me a half onion? And so we go to this place and like. You know, at first they didn't quite understand, like they would bring him out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Like a little cup of like diced onions or like slivered onions. And he would say, no, take an onion, take out a knife, Cut it in half. Bring me half of it. This is what I was that's, dealing with, Chris. What? That's insane. Yes. Uh, by the way, I would be totally down for a spinoff podcast called Brian, Ethan, and Joe Goodman <laughs> tell stories about their heat uh, heat times together. I don't that see why like we podcast. shouldn't have that on this podcast. Why wouldn't we? 
Can we, can we, can we just call podcast. Joe Goodman? I, I'd be so down to just call Joe Goodman <laughs> now, right now. Now, Ethan, is it correct that Joe would he would just sort of eat it like an apple? Yes. Yeah. No, he would eat it straight. Um, it was. Yeah. No, he, he would do that. It wasn't just that restaurant either. It was. A, I mean, he no, would right, do that in right. several cities, several cities around the country. And uh, yeah, there, there there are a lot of Joe stories. Related yes, to that. there I, are. I, I, that, that we can't tell on podcast. That, that, so. that, 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 we, can, that we, we, we cannot tell. But anyway, how did we get into this? Oh, that's right. I'm going uh, to tell you. Whether, whether, tell the, you. whether the fourth year of, of the Miami I know, of, of I French know dynasties I'm, goes the wrong way. I know where I'm going. I'm a professional. I, I okay. know where I'm going. So anyway, one of those trips that TNT was broadcasting, uh, I was flying from – there was one flight a day back then between Fort Lauderdale and um, – and Indianapolis, and it was nonstop, and it was on AirTran. And so we would all fly AirTran, at least I did. And uh, so I ended up sitting next to Steve Kerr on this plane, and Steve Kerr was on the broadcast group. He was uh, one of the color commentators for the conference finals. And so we're flying up to Indiana, I think, during that series. I know we landed in Indiana. I don't remember what game it was. And I remember him talking about his Bulls days, and being like, I can't tell you how after that three-peat, we were so done with each other. And so mentally, completely fatigued of being around each other. And so he goes, the fact that the Heat are doing this again is just a miracle to me. I don't know how they're doing it. It's so interesting. It's so relevant now. I mean, I remember that conversation so well. I remember where we were in the Indiana airport having it. And it's so incredibly relevant now because he's doing the he's got the exact same worries about this team. And, and he tried to sort of get ahead of it, right? He spent the whole year trying to create the narrative, basically. Yes. I mean, and he wasn't just making it up. He you know, I can verify he couldn't believe the Heat were able to maintain the mental and, you know, and it was the challenges that the Heat faced from a mental standpoint were not what the well, I didn't cover that Bulls team. I was in. I was in like high school, college. I mean, I, I can't I can't compare, but I kind of think that the Heatles underwent some more stresses than the Bulls team went. And so, yes, that fourth year, the wearing effect of going to final after final after final and all that stuff, and it's definitely there in Cleveland. Although in Cleveland, they've turned over the entire roster, essentially. It's basically LeBron Love and, um, and Tristan Thompson. That's it. They haven't even had the same coach for the all four years. Right. You could but, say you could say Jr. counts too because he came in middle of the first season. That's true. That is a fair point. That's true. Uh, and how's that going? <laughs> not, <laughs> not great. great. <laughs> right. yeah. Ethan, what was your experience with year four of the Heat? They just uh, they were just tired of each other. Uh, I mean, and, and I think I mean more of it's come out since. But I mean, we could sense being around that team that they had just you know they'd worn on each other. I, I think you know LeBron was tired of. You know, we, we talk about, you know, how much LeBron and, and Wade love each other. But that year, LeBron was tired of not knowing whether Dwayne was going to play or not. I mean, that that was a narrative the entire year. Ray was was clearly not happy, uh, made that do known you, to everybody. Do you remember the um, what it was like after game five in San Antonio? I'll never forget that as long as I have my faculties. Yeah, I do. I mean, the fir- the biggest thing I remember was basically Shane Battier saying, we knew we couldn't win. I mean, that, that's that right. Was, right. I mean, he, I mean, <laughs> wow. Sh- Shane had all the numbers ready. And as that's soon as right. we, he did. we got in the locker room, he was like, I knew we weren't going to win a championship because no team that's been outside of the top 10 and defensive efficiency has won a championship. <laughs> and, and it was that's clear right. on that. And, and so they all knew it. And also you look at the mix, the mix changed that fourth year just a little bit. But the fact that, you know, a guy like Mike Miller, who was so popular with everybody, and then they bring in who did they bring in? They brought in Odin, who was you know, and a, a lot of Michael this Beasley. was Odin and Beasley. So you had one guy who was you know, M- Michael's a little out there as we know, and and Odin who was sullen and off to himself, and those were the replacements. Uh, uh, Odin the basically wasn't Odin wasn't even on. The, I mean, he was barely on the team. Right. He he never <laughs> he never played. I mean, it, it was like I, I don't even even I don't even have a memory of watching him play. To be honest with you, I mean, obviously I did, but I don't remember him even I only, I only remember it because every new heat contributor got a standing ovation every time they came into the game like every, I remember, every time they found one player who was new like we just we're so desperate for not Carlos Arroyo like, that, Mike like, like, like like Mike Bibby the Mike <laughs> Bibby's the greatest example ever but every new oh this is something new that's going to help us by the way do you remember the press conference when Mike Bibby um it was actually 
instructive to me when Mike because it's just to remind you, Mike Bibby left five million on dollars on the table to take a buyout mm-hmm. from the uh, Hawks. Yep. Oh, I think it was I think it was the Wizards at the time, right? Because wasn't he traded to the Wizards? I mm. thought he was one of those. He gave up a lot of money though. Either okay. way. Okay. And uh, I remember I I remember I asked him. I, I remember being in the uh, interview room after like a shoot around. There's only like five or six of us in there, and I remember asking him about all the money that he gave up. He basically told me, uh, you don't get to decide what I do with my money in not so uncertain terms, which, by the way, is true. <laughs> Although it was a fair – I thought it was a fair question. <laughs> Ethan, uh, I remember being in uh, the Bahamas for uh, tr- for a training camp, mm-hmm. and I remember seeing Odin out there and being like, uh, he's months away from playing. Yep. And I remember I went – Shortly thereafter, to we had our annual, we have a meeting in the preseason every year in Bristol where everybody gets together. And I was at this meeting and we were discussing the Heat now, and, and they were asking me about Odin. And there was like, you know, producers from Countdown and um, and all these all these you know NBA people, and they all wanted you know Heat information. And I go, and they were all asking about Odin, and I go, Greg Odin will not play for months. He is months away from contributing. I watched him. You know, because we were because in training camp you actually can watch some practices, mm-hmm. and uh, he looked he just didn't look like he was ready to be an NBA player. And that night, right after I made my speech that day, that night Spo put him in a preseason game. Mm. <laughs> I felt like such an asshole. <laughs> and um, but then he didn't play again for three months. So, um, but uh, yeah, uh, that post game locker room, Chris. Um, first off. Out of every Heat playoff game that I covered, and out of those four years, Ethan, how many there had to have been? You know, seventy. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, at least yeah. Um, it was the lightest attended Heat post game locker room because the Spurs had won, and it was on the road. It was in San Antonio, so there was there was not that many people in the locker room. Number one, Shane, we all we all knew this was happening, but Shane announced his retirement. Mm-hmm. And he was very, he was in very good spirits. Yeah, um, he was in a very good mood, actually. <laughs> I, I remember in a, that. In addition to basically saying, we had no chance, I retire. Then we went to talk to Ray, and yes, we knew Ray was unhappy, but I didn't expect he, Ray, Ray basically came to the five-yard line of saying he was retiring. Mm-hmm. Now, I was saying to myself, okay, I'm not listening to a player at the end of a season, because I, I remember... A couple of year, like a year later, Richard Jefferson retired in the post game locker room after Game Seven of the Finals, and I was like, "You're not retiring." And he's still playing. It's two, three years later. <laughs> um, I remember not a hundred percent believing that Ray would retire, but it sure sounded like he was going to retire, based on what he said. He kind of was, you know, he was like, I, "I've I've come to terms," with it. and that was a surprise to me. Bosch was like so, I wouldn't say he was like happy. But like there was not even a a stress on his face like that that there was ever like relief really. almost the whole locker room was relieved. Yep. Now look, Le- yeah. LeBron LeBron was not LeBron was pissed. And now they went into the press conference and he started talking about my team and mm-hmm. he wasn't talking about the Heat. Right. And I was like, uh oh, uh oh. I still didn't. I still like I wasn't. I didn't think that night he was walking, but a little red light did flicker on. But the thing about it, Brian, with that team was all of it was about relief. Like I even remember, you know, the best that that team ever played, obviously was the 2012, 2013 season. And I remember mm-hmm. after they lost in Chicago, that where they, they had the 27 game winning streak and LeBron was angry because I think it was Heinrich who took kind of a cheap shot at him that night. And that led to the whole Danny Ainge getting on the radio and, and getting on LeBron for complaining. And then that's and then, right. And then Riley saying, Oh, uh, the, said, greatest, saying, the greatest, the sh- greatest, sh- Shut the bleep up and manage uh, your own team. Uh, to no, Danny come, on, Ainge. come on, come on, Ethan. Let, let's curse on the pod just once. What, <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> STFU. Uh, you might as well. You might as well tell that story too, because <laughs> that was one of the stranger things of all time. Tim Donovan, the Heat's. You, Ethan, you tell the story. Okay, so so basically, what happened? So anyway. The 27 game winning streak is over. Everybody is happy about that except LeBron. I think like the uh, Dwayne because he was chasing he was chasing history. He wanted he was it chasing on his history, but but the rest of them like Dwayne was done with it. Like they were all done with it. They'd been under all that pressure for all that time. And they I, remember I think that you remember that game in Cleveland where they were down like 28 and came yeah. back and won. It was like Shane hit four threes. Yeah, a, like and, they completely exhausted themselves. Like they were. 
never should you ever have played a game in Cleveland that would have tired you out like that. But it was pretty amazing. <laughs> it was. And so we get to the uh, we get to New Orleans. And so that, so here the Heat's 27 game winning streak is stopped in Chicago. And we're standing outside the locker room. There are about four, four or five of us. And uh, and basically, uh, you know, the Danny Ainge had gone on the radio and, and taken, sh- you know, some shots at LeBron. I think he went on WEI in Boston uh, about complaining about, you know, the hard fouls and things like that. And Tim Donovan walks out of the locker room and looks at us and, and he starts to read from I think he would read from like a little sheet of paper. And he said he said he said, we, we have a statement for Pat Riley and we want you to uh, y- you can use it on the record. We want you to use it on the record. And he just goes and, and basically I think Tim's hands were shaking a little bit. And he goes, yeah, daddy age needs to. And I think he said it first. I don't think he used the acronym I'm going to use here at first. He said STFU and and manage his own team. And and I remember ty- typing the tweet in wrong because I, I think I wrote coach's own team because I was so flustered. Like, <laughs> like, this is really happening. Like, he's trashing another. And I remember us then walking into the locker room and there's LeBron and Mike Mancius, his trainer, is working on him in the middle of the locker room. And New Orleans has kind of a small or uh, small visiting locker room. And LeBron is lying down on his back, getting worked on. Go, and you can tell he's going through Twitter. So he's seeing all these tweets posts with the Pat Riley quote. And he's just has this wide smile. Uh, on there. And, and I remember, I don't know, you might have written a piece after this, Brian, about Riley, you know, trying to sort of win LeBron over. Like, I, well, I thought that was a well, sort he of also, Well, th- this, it was like, a, it, was a, it was a double score for Pat because he also hates Danny Ainge. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so if you're going to take a stand and, and have your guys back, <clears throat> he couldn't have been happier to say it to Danny Ainge. But what I remember is that it was like, wait a minute, Tim. You're saying this is actually like we all I think we kind of thought it was a joke. Yes. <laughs> You're saying those exact words are on the record from Pat? Yes. Yes, they are. And I don't think he got fined for it. He may have gotten a call, or I mean, you know, but the in fact I know that he was not at least publicly fined for it. So the league was like, what's that um that one movie, that Coen Brothers movie, Intolerable Cruelty, yes. where they're choking the witness and the, the lawyer says, objection, your honor, choking the witness. And the judge says, I'll allow it. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that was kind of like David Stern, you know. He, wait, he just, Pat Riley just told, uh, told Danny Ainge to F off. I'll allow it. I think it's the Danny Ainge exception. Apparently, I mean that should be should be added should be added I'm, in there. I'm actually but... I'm actually looking right now at the Deadspin story, and uh, they they used your tweet, Ethan. They used your tweet like to to cite the the exact quote. Danny Ainge needs to shut the fuck up and manage his own team. It's so it's such a great story. Yeah, that such was my second story. tweet. Because like I said, the first tweet I got wrong. I had to erase <laughs> it and and, uh, and 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 repost it. Well, let, let's transition here then. Can, Brian, I, can, because... can I just very quickly okay. file a, a, a couple of uh, of factual uh, things? So. Uh, Ethan, you were correct about Mike Bibby because uh, he was traded to the Washington Wizards in exchange for Kirk Heinrich, and it was with the Wizards that he worked out that buyout. And you asked, uh, Brian, how many playoff games did he play in during the four-year run? That number is 87. 87 yeah. playoff games wow. in four years. Thought it, thought it was close to 100. I mean, they went they went, they there was won, a, they went there was, seven in was, a lot of those series. I said there was a handful of seven-game series. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, man, I mean, well, the one year they won seven games in the conference finals and the finals, right? Yeah, with I uh, mean, with Indiana and then with the Spurs. Yep, I rem I remember it, but I don't remember it. Like, uh, yeah, I I feel the same way. A, a lot of it was a blur. A lot of it blurs together, but you're right, Brian. Like no team has ever gone through the kind of stuff that that team went through, and I don't know that that any team ever will again because it was so directed at one person at the very start. And I mean, that was all we were talking about in training camp. I remember Eddie House's quote to the great Eddie House, uh, <laughs> who, who actually Spolster went to in the finals against Dallas because he was trying to find an answer in that last game because he wasn't getting it from anybody else, basically, except Dwayne. And I remember Eddie House, you know, his quote to me was, you know, middle fingers to the haters like that was their that was their whole slogan early in that year and and we've talked about this on the pod before brian if you look at that roster from the first year it just wasn't a very good roster i mean you you had the three guys you know with bosh in his prime lebron you know entering his prime and and wade sort of on the on the back edge of his prime but beyond that there wasn't a whole lot on that team i Um, feel like there was like the heat had like 24 guys on the roster that year at one point because they kept all centers all centers they kept cycling through guys and um you know, there were like guys in training camp. 
like Patrick, again, things I have no recollection of. I have no recollection of Patrick Beverly in training camp. <laughs> None. I know he was there. I know he went to preseason games. I have no recollection of him whatsoever. But, you know, the Stackhouse played yep. for a couple of days. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that Lord. was... Eric Dampier, Jamal McGlore, going to Dexter Pittman. Remember that? That was uh, the, the in, in Indiana, starting Dexter Pittman at the beginning of that game. It didn't uh, Ar- go well. It didn't go well. Arroyo being uh, Arroyo being pushed out. So, I mean, we we can talk about Dexter Pittman uh, just picked up another foul. By the way, I, I, I just I just want to make sure that we, that we that we we clarified that for the record. He never played again in that series. Actually, Eric tried that for about three and a half minutes, and that was it. That was that, that was, was the second year, though. Oh, that was second. No. Yeah, right. Well, no, wait. Was it, no, it was the first year. It, it might have been, I yeah. No, you might might have been the second year because I think it was the year they had Turioff also. Remember the the well, Turioff no, I, no, it was it was that year because the, he was playing as the Bosch replacement, right? Like they were kind yes. of recycling through Bosch yes. replacements. Uh, it, that hurt. was year two. That was year two. You're right. That was year two. But uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of it, uh, a lot of it bleeds. Well, let me ask you this, Brian. The transition. So we talk about those years and obviously the stars that the Heat had. And Chris and I have talked about this on pods that Riley is in a, an odd position for him where he's committed to a middle of the road you know, or slightly better than middle of the road team. How does he get another star before he moves aside at this stage? So when it comes to like scoring major free agents, like Pat Riley has like a Tony Gwynn batting average, like historic, like if you look at all the guys he's gone after, nobody hits better than 300. Right. Yep. And Riley has gotten major guys, but you can still be great at it and still strike out seven out of 10 times. Yeah, and that's the free agent game. And he's had such great success with the free agent game that I understand why he yearns to get back in the batter's box. But it's been a drought here. And um, to me, you know, the Heat made two enormous decisions the first year after LeBron left. The first one was the Dragic trade. Because they were like, because, the, you know, they could have completely tore it all down. And they were like, wait a minute, we can get an all-star level point guard. Was that the first, that was that the second year after the trade? No, that was the first uh, year. That was the first no, that year. Because then, then Bosch had the, because the, Bosch told the story on the Simmons pod recently that it was as he was going into the hospital that he was told that he, that, that they had traded for Dragic. So it was like, it was all part of that whirlwind moment. Right. That's right. I remember that. They were able to celebrate for five minutes about that. Yeah. So that was a huge moment. And then the other moment was, and this I think is really the big thing, was matching the Tyler Johnson offer sheet. The Tyler Johnson offer sheet match is like a a huge moment because it put the Heat's salary cap space on a clock. Because it was like, we have to use our cap space before Tyler Johnson's number hits. And that put an enormous amount of pressure on spending in the summer of 2017, in my opinion. And beyond what you actually think of Tyler and whether you what do you think of that salary or whatever, you know, they knew they were that they were going to have a window in 2017. And from what I am told by people in the organization, they put on the greatest free agent pitch that they've ever done for Gordon Hayward. That. They were as proud of it as anything they've ever done. And uh, Tracy McGrady, by the way, told me a legendary story that I had never heard before Tracy told it to me. Maybe it was known in Miami and I never heard it. So you can tell me, guys, that when Tracy McGrady came down there, when he signed with the Magic, and I think it was in 2000, mm-hmm. when, McGrady came, when McGrady came to Miami, they went to Alonzo's house, which I don't exactly know where it was, somewhere on the bay. And... While they were there hanging out at Alonzo's house, uh, it was it was it was Alonzo and Tracy. A um, you know a, a cigarette speedboat, whatever you call those things, pulls up to Alonzo's mansion. They get on it and they go speeding across the bay down to Riley's house. Um, <laughs> wow! <laughs> and the they they take this incredible speedboat that goes zipping across. And Riley lived somewhat south, right? Yeah, um, at the time, so, yeah. So my guess is that Alonzo lived maybe, if not on Star Island, on somewhere maybe off the beach. And they passed. You, can you just imagine? This is McGrady. You go zipping past downtown on the speedboat, and they arrive at Riley's house. Riley is on the dock, and at Riley's house, they offer him the contract. 
Okay. Jesus. Now, one, one, tell me that's not genius. Okay. <laughs> Two, McGrady didn't sign it, which is amazing, but he was from the Orlando area. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Grand Hill and everything like that. Three, despite that having taken place and the fact that they landed LeBron James and Chris <laughs> Bosch in the same summer, there were people from the Heat organization that told me that their pitch and their visit with Hayward went better than all of those. <laughs> <laughs> right. and that's a pretty high standard, man. Okay. So they were disappointed they didn't get Gordon. And again, this is not because of a failure. Right. This the, is because right the, the fact that they were even close is a damn miracle when you're when you're comparing exactly. it up against what Boston has. He has a guy's college coach who recruited him when he was eighteen years old. So some of it is just like again, you can be the best in the world at at this and still you're gonna miss occasionally. So um but but they put themselves in such a box that they felt like they had to spend money and they ended up locking themselves in to it, you know, you guys don't have to even finish the sentence. They locked themselves into an to a to a team that was slightly above average, and as we sit here today, I think they're three games over five hundred. Mm-hmm. I think they're give or take. You know, for all that talk about eleven and thirty, then thirty and eleven, we now have all know, almost one hundred and fifty game what, through eighty two games last year. They've played about seventy games this year. That's one hundred and fifty games of the last two years. We have a team that's five hundred. And the problem with it, Brian, is that you, you look at the roster right now, and they have some nice young pieces. I mean, I, I think you know Josh Richardson has probably been their best two-way player. Bam it's has a been gr- a really great good draft pick. pick. Great draft pick, Rob great, Richardson. Uh, Richardson was, uh, and Chet Kammer was 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 a lot behind that. And then Adebayo looks like a, another great draft pick. So they have a couple of core pieces, but again, they're locked in. You mentioned the Tyler deal. They're locked in now. I mean, the James Johnson deal this year looks really rough. I mean, looking ahead where he's going to be 34 by the end of that thing, that looks really rough. And then I, 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 Deion Waiters deal, thank too. Thank you. Thank you. I was waiting yeah. for Deion, <laughs> uh, which apparently they did knowing he had a broken foot, if you believe all the press releases, which I don't necessarily believe. But by the way, Chet Kammerer is super duper duper respected in the league. People think that that guy is one of the best talent evaluators, like for as much credit as Riley gets. And even in the wake of the Heedle run, Spo and Andy Ellisberg have become much more well-known and respected because they're good at what they do. But Chet Kammerer, people just think he is one of the best personnel men in the league. And... Again, the Heat, by comparison to other teams, basically have a skeleton staff. They operate with literally a fraction of what other front offices do. And yet, from a front office standpoint, they win so much of the time. But having said all that, I really think there's there's really only one way for the Heat team to leap forward. And maybe this was part of their arithmetic when they spent all the money last summer. Maybe it wasn't. What they really need is they need a player to do what Chris Paul did, mm-hmm. to go to their team and say, I want to play for the Miami Heat. Trade me to the Miami Heat. And then you can use Richardson or Winslow or Olenek or whatever package you're going to try to use to get that player. That's what, or, you know, uh, you know, Adebayo is well respected as having a good looking future. That's what the heat need to happen there. You know, they, you're not going to have space for, 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 you know, for at least the next two years. I mean, anything's possible, but probably for the next two years. And so that's the thing. And it, it, at some point, some, you know, it's just, this is what I say about the Lakers. Some superstar player will take the Lakers money at some point. Granted, it's been longer than we thought it would be. It's certainly been longer than they thought it would be, but it's not like the, the Bucks. It's like they're the Bucks or they're, you know, the, the, the Hornets. They know at some point they will get a star. And I feel like at some point the Heat will get a star. But at this point, it's going to have to be, in the short term, it's going to have to be something like that. I'm just surprised, and you know the the, the Tracy McGrady story is incredible. But the, I mean, the, with with the number of swings that they've taken at this, with what I imagine the rush that Pat Riley would get from doing all this, that they don't just give themselves as many chances as possible, right? That 
you know, they did match on Tyler Johnson instead of just saying, you know what, Brooklyn, you can take him for $12 million. It's fine. Or, you know, letting James Johnson go and find that market with another team and, and have them pay the 30-year-old journeyman forward. Like, the idea that, that Riley just gave away the farm for, you know, journeymen, for players that kind of had their best years in Miami, I, I'm just surprised that that's where he decided to put down the baseball bat. Well, Chris, if you really want to get in the weeds here, I think what you could say is the Heat typically, especially in terms of contracts, typically are ahead of the curve. They are the people that people copy. Last summer, we started to see players, because the demand in the market wasn't as high as they thought it would be, we started to see players take shorter contracts than they thought they would get. For example, Kyle Lowry was thinking, he was getting a five-year, $200 million deal. The Raptors ended up getting him for three. Paul Millsap, again, a multi-time all-star, totally unrestricted free agent. He ends up, now he's a little older, but he ends up getting a two-year max with a team option on the third year. There's other examples of this, too, where you know players took shorter contracts. So the question I would have about what the Heat did, I recognize that that second half run last year was powerful, and I recognize absent of getting... Hayward or Durant, you know, the year before that it made sense to bring those guys back. The thing that I didn't understand was why four years to James Johnson, why four years to Deion waiters. There was nobody offering those guys that type of money. And there were other teams in the league that were recognizing that and saying, okay, well, we're going to give you two years and we're going to control the third year or something like that. And it wasn't like Deion waiters to my knowledge, had anything else in that vein. And so it's not just that those what those guys earned per year. I mean, mm. if you absolutely had to trade James Johnson, you could do it. It's the fact that the contracts are so long. And also, like, I'm pretty sure, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, that James Johnson got, like, a player option in the last year. Yes. Yeah, he yeah. has one fourth year. <laughs> I know. Guys, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's not how the Heat normally operate. Normally, the Heat have control, stuff like that. Brian, the other problem with it is that you know you, you do that with James Johnson. So you have a guy with some similar skills in Winslow right. that you're, you're trying to, to give a role to. And now, you know, I mean, it, things have changed a little bit. It's, it's interesting to me that Winslow has played better since Wade has come back because Dwayne has taken some of those ball handling responsibilities also. But, but you know, in Winslow, you essentially have a, a younger version of James Johnson. And so you've blocked him to a certain degree while he's here. And that, that's the other reason that it didn't uh, make a ton of sense. And you mentioned with waiters, you know, you're paying him all that while you knew you had this Tyler Johnson commitment. So you already, you're going to be paying $19 million to a two guard and you commit 12 or 13 a year to, to waiters. So I, there's just there's a lot of duplication in terms of skill set. And then, like you mentioned, you know, doing the four years, it makes it difficult to trade these guys, too, especially with the cap flattening out. Like for Whiteside, Whiteside had other offers at the max. So whatever contract machinations that he got, like the market for him was strong. Like he would have signed in Dallas had the Heat not given him that offer. There was an absolute verifiable other market for him. I just, you know, and you know, and maybe Dion's agent would come on here and, t- and tell me that I'm wrong. I just do not believe that there was that market out there for Dion. And I, I would be stunned if that market was out there for James Johnson. But I don't have a problem necessarily with bringing him back. I just sort of, because what you have now is you have a roster that has no flexibility or very, very limited flexibility. It's going to be hard to change the roster very much uh and the players that like like again they could trade bam or they could trade richardson in the next 90 seconds if they had to they don't want to trade those players they want to have those guys as assets and right now let me tell you something even if Dion was healthy right now and averaging 18 points a game for a team that was roughly 500 i know they're a couple games over but they're roughly 500 he's still not an asset because there still wouldn't have been anybody who wanted to take him for three more years so the, so the so the Heat have put themselves in a little bit of a corner. I just didn't understand. Like I, I honestly had no problem with any of the signings because they made the best of what they did. Like I said, for, you know, for example, like we'll we'll see how this goes long term. 
But like there were people who knocked the thunder for the Oladipo contract that they gave him. They gave him a four-year, eighty million dollar extension. Now Oladipo has gone on to become an, to become an all-star, but Oladipo was sort of similar to Dion in terms of like, wow, that felt like an overpay, you know. Mm. But they needed Oladipo because when Paul George was available to be traded, they ended up needing that player. So you know, if of a player like Paul George's. Bill comes along. That's why, like, you know, I'm getting way, way, way into the weeds here. But, like, that's why I think that the Celtics are going to end up having to sign Marcus Smart, for example, to a decent contract. Because the Celtics go to bed every night dreaming of trading for Anthony Davis. They dream that in a year from now that Anthony Davis is going to get tired of the Pelicans and he's going to slam his fist and say, send me out of here. And they're going to try to trade him. They don't have many tradable contracts up there. Mm. They may have to keep Marcus Smart just because they're going to have to have a salary to trade. You know, so like there is an advantage to having James Johnson on that contract because, you know, again, if a player wakes up and says, send me to Miami, you're going to need that contract to trade. It's just the the length that makes it so difficult, because if you had to trade it, it's one thing if you want to trade it, if you had to trade it, the only way you'd be able to do it would be incentivizing it. And the Heat don't have extra draft picks to do that. Well, that's the big issue is they don't, as you mentioned, with the Dragic trade, they just they don't have those picks. So that that creates a real problem. All right, Brian, we have kept you too long. So we want to uh, want to let you uh, you go here because I know you have uh, baby duties to get to, which uh, I'm, I'm familiar with myself. So th- this is a this is a pretty long, uh, long period of time of sleeping. Correct. I've, I've, I have not heard anything in the next room. So I'm, <laughs> I am taking it to believe that everything is going just fine. Okay. A major victory. And may, that may not be true, but I'm taking it to leave. And and no, I didn't just leave my son without supervision. I have, I have my mother-in-law is here, but but I have not heard a cry, so I feel I feel I feel okay. All right, well that's uh, that's good to know. Brian Winhorse again. You can follow him at Winhorse ESPN. You can see him all over ESPN. Read him on ESPN.com. You uh, you have some appearances on the Jump coming up here in the next few days. Of course, I mean I always have something. All right. We'll send our be- send our best to uh, to Rachel, and we will uh, you know we we will we will welcome you being a Florida resident again if you ever want to revisit that. <laughs> For tax purposes, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys are aware, but it can, there can be some advantages to being a Florida resident. I'm sure uh, none of your listeners actually know that, but uh, I just thought I'd give you a little tip. Uh, no, no problem. All right, and uh, you can always download us on iTunes, on Stitcher if you have Android, on Google Play. We'll have two more episodes coming up next week we're going to be joined by uh, will manso of uh, local abc down here as well as barry jackson's sports buzz of the miami herald have a great day